Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And a good morning to you in the first day of winter for 2020. I'm Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, who's taking his Christmas vacation at this time. Nice to be with you today. Great show lined up for you, courtesy of producer John Jang. Tim French back from his uh, trip to the wilderness behind the controls. Nice to have you with us. And uh, weather, just weird enough for everybody to be wide awake on a Monday morning. Uh, Our first guest today joining us from Toronto is uh, Post Media News columnist Brian Lilly, uh, who's here to talk to us about Well, in fact, a couple of columns he's written recently, including today's, which, of course, is all about the story of the Canadian ban on flights from the UK in the wake of the announcement of the new strain of coronavirus over there. And I'm quoting now from Brian's column today in the in the Sun Media Group, the new strain of COVID, which officials say has been circulating in Britain since September, has also been found in Denmark, the Netherlands and Australia. Right now, it accounts for more than 60 percent of new infections. So the question is, how many did we let in before the flights from Britain stopped? And all of this may surprise those who thought Canada's borders were closed in March when Prime Minister Trudeau made an announcement to that effect. The reality is the border never closed. This is Brian Lilly's column about halfway through the column today, which is entitled Trudeau bans UK flights. But is it too late to stop the new COVID strain? Brian Lilly, good morning. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me on, Sterling. It's, you know, got to be frustrating for people, you know, depending on where you live in the country, you're facing different types of restrictions on where you can go, who you can see. And we've been told that the border has been closed. You know, uh, how many snowbirds can't be heading down to Palm Springs right now right, sure. or to Phoenix or to, you know, out in my neck of the woods, they mostly go to Florida. You bet. You can't, you know, my parents can't drive down to Florida. And then you find out that in the last two weeks, there have been uh, five incoming flights from London with COVID-infected passengers that's a small number because we've had 13 COVID-infected flights from Cancun, eight from Frankfurt, six from Fort Lauderdale, and six from New Delhi. In total, 107 international flights landing at one of the four airports still taking international flights yep. in Vancouver, mm-hmm. Calgary, Toronto, or Montreal. Mm-hmm. 107 in the last two weeks with COVID-infected passengers, sometimes more than one. And, of course, the people sitting around them there's a very good chance they could have been infected while they were waiting. So why do so many of us, why have so many of us, Brian, bought into this sort of we're sealed off, we've, we've, we've closed the 49th parallel, no Americans are allowed, so automatically in our minds we go, we're shut down. Whereas, in fact, we know the American border has never closed to commercial traffic. Uh, and and uh, as we're learning, uh, our international borders have never really closed at all. So where is the myth that so many of us have bought into? I think it's because most of us aren't traveling and we're not going out. Uh, You know, there's a, as I was writing about the, um, the looming Ontario lockdown that we might talk about in a minute. We certainly will. 
I was looking at polling from Ipsos, you know, the, the world's largest polling firm, uh, asked people across the country, are you going to be traveling? And the fact is, most people across the country said, no, no, I, I'm not comfortable traveling with uh, COVID. It was uh, about 72% across the country, 79% in Ontario, where sure. I was writing about, uh, who said, no, I'm not comfortable traveling. So most of us aren't. Some people obviously are. And, and you can't tell me these are all Canadians coming back. You know, because, look, the, the pandemic and the lockdown started back in March. Right. Well, the pandemic started before that. The lockdown started in March. We were told the border was closed. Um, that never happened. You know, was, and, and then when they do announce that they're going to suspend flights from Britain, there's two things that surprise me. One, it's only 72 hours. Right. Two, um, I'm surprised the prime minister didn't tell us all to go out to uh, British pubs lest we uh, put a stigma on people from Britain, because that was his answer back in January, February, and March, up until he closed the border, as people said we should have uh, border restrictions on flights from Wuhan, right. or eventually from Egypt, or Italy, or Germany, or the U.S., as the virus moved. No, we can't do that. It'd be racist. It'd be knee-jerk. Uh, you know, we've just got to... Uh, to, to keep moving on. And then, as I recall at the time, Brian, not only, not only were they talking about, you know, how, how inappropriate it might be to ban flights from China and how there were racist overtones and even suggesting such a thing. Uh, knee-jerk reactions was the Prime Minister's uh, d- description of, of such a, a move. And then they all went out and had Chinese food just to prove to the world that they, they understood. Well, they didn't understand and they didn't close the border, did they? No. And right now, there are international flights uh, arriving at Vancouver Airport. You know, YVR is not as busy as it normally is, but let me just uh, give you some examples. So, um, in about 10 minutes' time, there's a flight from Mexico City mm-hmm. that will land. Uh, that's at 9.20. At 9.40, a flight from Portland will land. 9.43, a flight from Seattle uh, will land. I'm just going through the international. This is this at morning, right? Yeah, 10.30, a flight from Hong Kong will land. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10.43, San Francisco. 10.45, Tokyo. Uh, you go down the list. Um, you know, we, like I said in, in the column, we're not just importing, uh, potentially importing a new strain from the UK. We continue to import COVID from around the world. Uh, the government keeps track of this, and then, uh, you know, if you're on one of these flights, I was looking up one of the uh, the London flights. By the way, there was a, a London to Vancouver flight that landed on December 10th, and if you were in fl- uh, rows 35 through 42, you need to be worried. Mm-hmm. You could potentially be infected. So I was looking up, you know, what kind of planes does Air Canada use to, to do these flights, and they tend to be fairly large, like a, a Boeing 777. Mm-hmm. That's about 450 people. 450 people potentially infected. They think that it might just be the three rows on either side of the passenger, but they don't know. 
And if it's any consolation to travelers, of course, Brian, the airlines have been just bending over backwards to assure us that even though there there may be there and there have been definite exposures, passengers have been exposed to coronavirus on many flights. But the contacting, the actual uh, contracting the disease uh, compared to the exposure ratio is very, very low. And they attribute that to their filtration systems and so on. And of course, they're saying absolutely anything they can to persuade uh, people not to completely eliminate air travel. But as you suggest in your in your survey from Ipsos earlier in the conversation, most of us have already decided we're not going to anyway. We're not even driving to the next town over most yeah. of the time. So, um, and look, as cases spike and uh, you start seeing, uh, you know, things getting worse than they were before, and by the way, we're in Ontario headed into lockdown. British Columbia has about uh, almost twice the active cases per 100,000 population as Ontario does. Mm. So you, you guys are in worse shape than we are. But, you know, as it spreads beyond just hot zones like the major urban centers, you know, I'm starting to say, okay, am I going to that town? One, do I, do I want to be spreading it if I'm a, uh, an asymptomatic carrier? Sure, right, yeah. Uh, but also... You know, am I putting myself at risk by going to stay at a hotel or things of, of, of that nature? Uh, yeah, uh, Ontario's at 127 uh, cases per 100,000 of population. British Columbia's at 219. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dr. Henry, this afternoon at 3 o'clock, will bring us up to date even more on uh, the current status of active cases and so on. And, of course, here the, the other question that a lot of people have this morning is, uh, the, it's, it's a hockey question, Brian, absolutely unrelated to anything but, oh, my gosh, it's the first day of winter and we still don't have the NHL, and apparently B.C. is uh, somewhat reluctant to go on side with the other four Canadian provinces and allow the Canadian division to go forward so that's the other big question mark and and not alone in that uh i was hearing from uh, uh one of my colleagues bruce garriak great hockey writer with mm-hmm. media out of ottawa ottawa sure yeah and uh, you know bruce has his ear to the ground and he was emailing me saying what, you know what can you find out for me from the ontario government because his sources are saying uh that they were on board and now they're not Good morning, Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith. Brian Lilly, Sun columnist on the line in Toronto. And speaking of Toronto, if you lived in Toronto this morning, this and you turned on the radio when you woke up, this is what you heard. Global News has learned Ontario will be completely locked down for 28 days come Christmas Eve. Sources close to the Premier's office say the only exception will be in northern communities, which will be placed under a 14-day lockdown period. The move comes at a time the province grapples with record high new cases of the novel coronavirus. That is Morgan Campbell from Global News Toronto. And that is the, there it is, Brian. It's it's a done deal, effective Christmas Eve in just a couple of days. Uh, most of the province of Ontario going into complete lockdown. What's the story on schools? It's a 28-day lockdown. Typically, schools go out for about 14 over Christmas. So will this uh, double the school break for Christmas? Uh, well, and just to give you a quick update, this happening moments ago, and this is why I've been around government a long time, Sterling. This is why I said it could begin. In my story, I said it could begin. You did. Because the uh, word out of Queen's Park now is that it will begin on December 26th. Ah. We'll we'll find out full details. I mean, you know, Cabinet was meeting all morning. They're going to be going back and forth. Uh, What I reported on, uh, 
in, in was it Megan you said? Yes. Uh, reported on is what the proposal was before the government. So the proposal was started on Christmas Eve, make it uh, 28 days for most of the province, 14 for northern Ontario. And the, the reason is when once you get up to areas like Thunder Bay, Timmins and so on, very few cases of COVID-19. Right. Uh, some would argue that they don't even need a lockdown. Some would argue, you know, none of the province needs a further lockdown compared to what we have now. More than a third of the population is already in a lockdown. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so the proposal is 28 days for most of the province, 14 for northern Ontario, some increased measures, including stopping things like outdoor skating rinks. We've got a lot of them sure. here in Toronto. I've got one a short walk from uh, my condo that I was just at on the weekend. There's a good chance that will be shut down. Uh, cross-country ski trails shut down, uh, things like that to, to just try and keep people at home. Schools, um, it depends. Elementary uh, would go back earlier. So okay. you know, they finished on Friday and they were scheduled to go back on January 4th. According to the proposal that was before cabinet, you know, depends on what they voted for. Uh, it would they would go back January 11th, according to this proposal. High school students would either go back the 18th or the 25th, so they would be doing online learning. I see. Okay. That time right. And about you know, most of our high school students are doing half uh, online, half in person. So if you go one day in in class. Your next day is online, uh, online, yeah. or it's two and two. It depends on on the school district. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, all of these things we'll find out about at uh, one o'clock our time, which is uh, just about forty minutes from now. Uh, so, ten o'clock your time. It's um, it, it's going to be interesting. It, you know, uh, a lot of debate starting here. Ontario has been the most skittish province in the entire country when it comes to COVID-19 and always very much in favor of harder and stricter lockdowns. Um, and that uh, will that change? I'm not sure. The polling would say no. But now, you know, I'm hearing from people who were all in favor of lockdowns. But now that we're getting details, they're not crazy about it because it, it affects their region. It affects their lives. Right, right. It's not um, abstract anymore, is it? Yeah, it's no longer just theoretical. It's going to hit them. So will that change? I, I, I don't know. You know, we've had stricter lockdowns than than you have. When uh, your restaurants were still open with reduced capacity, ours were closed for much of the time. Uh, I, I know that uh, BC has uh, you know become a bit more strict uh, in terms of it um, uh, over the last several weeks. Yes. But you know, we've always been stricter, and the population has had an appetite for more. So um, we'll see what the reaction is like to this. My guess is that Cabinet, looking at this, said, you can't do this to people on Christmas Eve. Um, you know, we can't be the Grinch or the Scrooge or, you know, whatever uh, comparison that you want there. We've got to let people have Christmas and then say, shut down for two weeks, which is not dissimilar to what Quebec has been advocating for and telling their people that uh, there are stricter conditions and restrictions coming after Christmas. And yet you point out that 86% in your column today, 86% of Ontarians said, well, we're we're planning to to have a pretty low-key event Christmas anyway, so this isn't too disruptive. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, how many people do you know that we're going to have the, uh, the the big Christmas dinner? I was doing a, a radio interview with a station in Pennsylvania, actually, a little while ago. And when I mentioned that, it was just before U.S. Thanksgiving. I said, you know, a lot of people just won't be having uh, the, the, the big family dinners. Oh, I'm going to have just as many people as always. And I said, well, you know, if, if you're always having fights with Uncle Bob, this is the year to make sure Uncle Bob doesn't come because <laughs> uh, you've got the perfect excuse. Oh, uh, Sorry, just, you just, can't come with COVID. It's a four-degree, soggy, socked-in Monday morning. It's the first day of winter. I'm Sterling Fox in for the vacationing Mike Smith. More than 30 countries, including our own, have implemented a UK travel ban as a new strain of coronavirus seems to accelerate the rate of infection. Over in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said early indications are the new variant of the virus is 70% more transmissible and is driving the rapid spread of new infections in the capital and surrounding areas. Here's more from Prime Minister Johnson. I was briefed on the latest data that shows the virus spreading more rapidly in London, the southeast and the east of England than would be expected given the tough restrictions that are already in place. And I also received an explanation for why the virus is spreading more rapidly in these areas. It seems that the spread is now being driven by the new variant There's no evidence that it causes more severe illness or higher mortality, but it does appear to be passed on significantly more easily. Very unsettling revelations from the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson. And of course, what does this mean for those of us here on the other side of the pond, especially to those of us who are feeling somewhat, just somewhat a tiny bit of a ray of light at the end of the tunnel because there's a vaccine now at play. Here to sort this all out and answer some questions and probably take your calls too is Jason Tetro. Jason is an infectious disease expert and of course host of the super awesome science show. Joining us from Edmonton this morning. Hello, Jason. Oh, hello there. It's good to have you with us again. This is terribly unsettling news. You and I talked a few days ago about uh, the vaccine and and whether the Moderna vaccine versus the Pfizer vaccine, which would be more preferable, those sorts of things. It was a very positive conversation because we were talking about the, the remedy to the problem. And this morning we find out the problem is significantly greater than we anticipated. What do you make of these revelations, Jason? Well, let's put it this way. If we had a situation where everybody had some kind of immunity against this particular coronavirus, and then it mutated to somehow alter its ability to be detected by our immune response, that would be a pretty bad thing, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. But we, how many of us have immunity? That's true. Very few of us. Especially in Canada, very few, yeah. Exactly. So the reality is that while this particular type of variant, uh, which, I mean, variations occur every single time a new virus is made inside of your lungs, um, can be seen as concerning, at, at the end of the day, nothing has changed in terms of what we need to do to be able to prevent it. You know, we still follow the ABCs, protect your airway, stick to your bubbles, know who your contacts are for contact tracing. Because 
whether it can replicate to 10,000 or 100,000 or a million times in your respiratory tract is not going to make that big of a difference right now because, well, nobody's got immunity. Sure. It's only after we've gone through the vaccine and we have immunity, then we can start worrying about these different types of variations. But we do that anyway for the flu. That's why we get a vaccine every year. Sure. So now, Mr. Johnson, the prime minister was talking about this and and in his brief description that we played before bringing you on, mentioned that Mm -hmm. the the evidence that he's seeing uh, doesn't indicate that this is dramatically new, but it does appear to be uh, spreading rapidly, Uh, more so than the original coronavirus. Do you know that yet, Jason? So we don't know that specifically. What probably has happened, I mean, if you take a look at this from a scientific perspective at this particular virus, it's a wee bit of a Frankenstein. So (laughs) most likely what ended up happening is it came out of somebody who probably did not have a very strong immune system to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know, compromised individual or something. We saw this with HIV. We see this with the flu. We see this with all sorts of others. Um, Then it starts spreading around. Now, it probably has a particular lock and key mechanism that is a little bit better than the original virus that we saw back in January of last year. Uh, That's probably why you're seeing a greater tendency for infection, greater tendency for spread, and maybe even higher viral load. But again, does this really matter when you think about it? Because whether it's the standard one from last January or it's this particular one, Mm -hmm. you just want to prevent it from getting inside of you. Sure. So the point is that we should carry on. We're at the very, very beginning of our national vaccination effort. So that we should be undeterred. If anything, this should consolidate our drive to get this thing done. Yes. And it also should start giving us a little bit more confidence in the fact that this is something we're used to every single year with the flu. So we go, we get our vaccine so that we know we're going to be okay. And this is sort of what's happening. Remember, this is not just simply going to be COVID is here today. And then in August, when the pandemic is over, is what I've predicted, uh, it's going to go away. Right. It's going to stick with us for years and years and years, just like the pandemic flu of 2009, 2010. So we're going to have a coexistence with it. And the more we get used to this idea of variation, of mutation, and the fact that vaccines are may necessarily be developed um, over time, not just the one today or whenever you're going to be able to get it between now and June, um, it gives you that confidence to know that our health system is prepared for this based on years and years or decades of history, as opposed to having to deal with something that's brand new. Yeah, well, it's good to hear the, the, the calmness in your voice as you describe all of this, because, you know, you start thinking about it. I get a flu shot every year. A lot of Canadians do. And, you know, <laughs> when you go to get your flu shot, they'll say, well, you know, it's a little different from last year because it uh, it's always changing. And so this year we may be a little more or a little less effective, but here you go and bang, you get your shot. So we're accustomed to that at the flu level, knowing that last year it was H1N1 and this year it's Y2, mm-hmm. well, you know, that we're accustomed to that sort of fluctuation. It's still the flu, but it varies in, in degrees of intensity. So it, this is a similar virus. So it too, like the flu, is going to vary a little. Yeah, all viruses are going to vary a little, and and the extent of that variation is really what we need to look at. Exactly. And one other, th- and and one other thing, um, I I know people have been hearing about the fact that with the, with respect to the COVID vaccine, it's knocking people out. Yeah. But if you got your vaccine this year for the flu, 
it also knocked you out because it's something that you haven't really seen before. And so anyone who's listening right now who went, wow, when I got the flu shot, it really sent me for a loop for Mm -hmm. 24, 48 hours. Well, you're going to get the same thing with the COVID vaccine, but you're going to have that protection. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Mike Smith with Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert, joining us from Edmonton to take your calls on, uh, well, we're talking about this new coronavirus that we've learned about from the UK over the weekend. And clearly a lot of uh, people are uh, curious, to say the least, about this. So let's uh, take some calls, Jason, and we'll start uh, with Benita. Good morning. Hi, thank you. Merry Christmas. Thank you for taking my call. I thought I'd call you in since I'm snowed in. Oh, already? Where are you? I. It's crazy. I, I woke up. I'm I'm in, in central Vancouver Island. Oh, okay. And it's already, I've got six, six inches on the ground. So All right, Vancouver, taking... you know what's on the way. Thank you no, for that heads up, Anita. What's your question for Jason this morning? Thank you. My question for Jason. Jason, um, why did this uh, second strain of uh, COVID occur in London, uh, th- that area specifically? And could it be in other areas on the globe that we don't know yet? And also, will with this second strain of this um, of this um, pandemic, will the current vaccines be? Uh, is, will the current vaccines work for this, or is this a different strain that now we have to have a different vaccine? That's a great question, Benita. That's the one that most of us want answered. Jason, what's the story? So, when we look at the um different types of variants that are out there. And there are thousands of different types of variants. Um, They've even been, you know, grouped into what we call clades. Um, There's this new one that started in the UK, and it's all due to this one minor change that occurred in uh, the, the, the spike protein that everybody knows about, sort of the key to get in the lock of your cell. Now, this happens a number of times in other places. And we actually see the same thing happening in South Africa, where they've got what they're calling a V2 variant um, that's basically doing the exact same thing. So this is something that's been going around the world and in different places, we just have that switch and that creates a new clade. So it's really just nature. There's no particular reason for it. There's no pressure that's coming from humans for it. Uh, And and as for the vaccine, Mm -hmm. what we know is that the vaccine uh, basically creates what's known as sort of a, a multimodal response. So that means that you're getting antibodies, you're getting T cells, and it's going after a whole bunch of different aspects of that spike protein. So if you've got one small variation, like we're seeing with this uh, you know, UK strain and mm-hmm. the South African strain, it's not going to change how well the vaccine is really helping you to uh, prevent that infection. Okay. Uh, at least that's what we're seeing at this point. All right. And that was, but uh, that was, Benita, you said, a question you ask a question i'm sure literally hundreds if not thousands of people listening right now also want to know is Mm -hmm. is the vaccine that we're just learning about going to be equally effective with this new variant and jason seems to think it will so thank you for that go ahead jason did you want to add something else Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, we may see a little bit of a drop in efficacy from maybe 95 to 92 or percent But I mean, honestly, I I don't see this being a problem. Well, you know, when you get a flu shot, sometimes the efficacy rate is down in the 60s. And you're still happy to take a flyer if it's two-thirds effective. If you're talking 92 or 95 percent effective, that's pretty good, Jason. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Flu is so rapidly changing that if we can get one that's like 70%, we're cheering in the streets. Sure. But when you've got something that isn't as variant as you see with respect to this COVID-19, um, you know, you can get that 90 to 95% and it's going to stick around for a very long time. So, you know, that's one of the comforting things about it being a coronavirus. Probably the only comforting thing considering how horrible this thing is turned to 2020. Exactly. Let's go to back to the phones in Surrey. Shannon is saying good morning. Hello. Good morning. Shannon, go ahead to I, Jason Tetro. Okay. Um, my question was answered. That was my question. I have another question. Go ahead. Um, I'm just wondering with, uh, you know, with the new strain, and I know you've answered the question about vaccines, you know, our policies to do with our health professionals across the country, uh, varying in different provinces. I'm just wondering about this living alongside of the virus portion of what you say. Now, do you view that as, you know, maybe, like, maybe do we really not need to take, like, of course, masks and distancing, but do we really need to shut things down if this is the case? You know, uh, schools are, are open, businesses or churches are are shut. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just wondering if we, as an expert in that area of transmission, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about the way we're handling that? A very timely question too, Shannon, because of course the province of Ontario is debating whether they're going to go into a 28-day complete shutdown uh, right now as we speak. So Jason, what's your thought? So there are a couple things uh, that you need to realize. The, the first one is that the coexistence is really going to happen after the vaccination has been completed because then we'll have that herd immunity or what we call elimination threshold, and then we'll be able to have the upper hand. Until then, when we have no immune system, we kind of just have to prevent infection from mm-hmm. happening. And that's where we get into this idea of the um, what obviously is not uniform regulations with respect to spread. Here's the thing. If you scream, shout, sing, or do anything with your voice that's going to project it, you got to shut it down unless you are outside in an area where there's a lot of ventilation. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it comes down to. So in a mall, it's huge. It, there, there's all sorts of ventilation going on. But more importantly, most people are hanging around themselves and their masks. Yes. At least I hope they are, right? When you go into a place such a, as a place of worship or you're going into a smaller place like a bar or something along those lines, Um, what ends up happening is that you're mixing that air without any large amount of ventilation going through there. And as a result of that, one person can literally lead to dozens of potential infections. And as we saw in South Korea just a couple weeks ago, you could have one person who sits underneath the vent that's coming out from the ceiling. Oh, I remember this. And that this. person ends up infecting somebody six or seven feet down the street. That's or right. Down the, down the uh, restaurant. So this thing is incredibly infectious, regardless of if there's a variant or not. And until we all have immunity, we have to start thinking about what places are the most likely to spread. And as I said, if you sing, scream, shout, or yell... That's the place where you're probably going to want to shut down instead of places where people are just gathering together in small crowds. One more call. If we can get Rob in Chilliwack with a quick question, we'll fit him in as well. Good morning, Rob. Yeah, okay. Hi, good morning. Yeah, it's more of a statement, but I'd like your your, uh, guest's response. I just find it, and and I'm not a conspiracy person. I believe the COVID. I believe COVID-19 is real. I just want to be upfront about that. But what makes me so frustrated is listening to the government. I think they need to be way more forthright with the citizens, not just of British Columbia, our government, but Trudeau himself, too, with Canadians. 
if it's so serious, we have the World Juniors flying in. Guess what? Six players test positive. That's right. From, from Germany, mm-hmm. two, Swede, two Swedish trainers test positive. You know, I haven't been able to see my mother, who's 93, who does happen to be in the Taberhome, and yes, did test positive, who's, who actually is fine now. I've seen her a handful of times. It breaks my heart since February. Yeah, uh, good. No, good points, Rob. And we have to give Jason 30 seconds to respond here. A, a lot of frustration and a lot of mixed messaging hasn't helped. Oh, yeah. And that's standard when it comes to pandemics. It doesn't matter if it was Constantinople in 542 or um, New York City in 1832. Um, it wasn't COVID, obviously, but governments, unfortunately, are always far behind the researchers and the researchers are usually just a step behind the virus. It's tough. I get it. Unfortunately, there's really not much that we can do other than to follow those ABCs, as I said earlier, and just do the best that you can to use the technology that we have today to be able to maintain that communication with people. That's all I can offer at this point. I'm sorry. Well, no, you can't. Don't apologize for a calm, professional analysis of a breaking news story, Jason. You've uh, calmed and uh, reassured many of us listening to you, and we thank you for that. Merry Christmas, my friend. We'll talk again soon. I'm sure we are, and Merry Christmas to everybody. Mike is on vacation. I'm Sterling Fox in for the next couple of weeks, enjoying myself enormously already. Uh, Tim French helping out on the controls. John Jang in the wings, putting all of this together. And on the line, joining us from Abbotsford, is Scully White, who owns a, a hot dog stand in the parking lot of a Canadian tire store called Lully's Food Experience, who successfully donated a kidney to one of his customers a few short days ago, and who is now offering free hot Hot dogs for life to anyone else who follows his lead and becomes a kidney donor. Scully White, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Scully. It's great to have you with us. Uh, it's quite a story you've got. And, and the operation was what? It was a week ago today, right? It was last Monday. So tell us the background. How did you come to know that this customer of yours had, was in medical trouble to the point where it became critical that he was going to need an organ donor to say nothing of how you became involved? Take us back to, the, to square one. This is quite a story. Uh, last summer, his wife called me up and told me that uh, he couldn't have any of my food or don't feed him any stuff from my stand because he had some... Uh, medical restrictions happening and they didn't know what was going on and that's when i actually found out what his first name was it was uh june of 2019 that his name was tim and they came a couple of more times throughout uh, the year and then december 8th they came out of canadian tire and they had this weird look on their face and he looked like shit he looked awful and um i asked them what was going on just normal chit chat and they told me I, we just found out that i need to have a kidney transplant and i know that you can live off of one kidney like a complete normal life. So I asked him, I said, what's the criteria? What do you have to be to qualify? Right. They told me uh, blood type B or O, which is universal. So I went out and got tested on the Monday. And then the Tuesday night, I got a little blurb on my email saying that I was type O. So I called them up and told them that uh, if, I, if the rest of the, the trip was a success, that he could have my kidney. And that's where the ball started rolling. And then just because of the blood type matching didn't mean that we were going to be a match. Sure, that's so true. still six to eight weeks of blood and tissue sampling mm-hmm. to make sure that his antibodies weren't going to attack something foreign from my body. But mid-January last year, they called me up and said, uh, you are a 100% match. Wow. Which blew the kidney people's minds because 
we have no relation. There's no ties to us, no DNA, no nothing. And uh, it's a long shot, but uh, we went in on the 14th, Monday, had the operation. On Monday night at 3 in the morning, I was walking around the ward. On Tuesday, I had my catheter removed, my oxygen removed. I was doing walks around the whole main floor of uh, VGH. And then I went home the next day. So 48 hours after I was on the chopping block, I was at home walking my dog. The chopping block, indeed. <laughs> so so take us back, though. Here's the part that I think bears a little investigation. You find out from this fellow who's been buying hot dogs from your stand for a couple of years, and you've never paid any yeah. attention other than, hi there, and what'll it be today, and all of that. And then you find out, eventually, his first name is Tim because his wife calls you up and says, don't feed him any more stuff, he's got medical <laughs> issues. So then you yeah. find out eventually that Tim, the customer, has a kidney issue and needs a transplant or needs a, a donated kidney. And you just, the way you described your reaction to that is where I want to stop. Because how on earth could you just, on the spur of the moment, decide, bingo, well, I'll, I'll take a flyer. You can have one of mine. What the heck? Uh, it just, something just told me to. It was, um, you know, I've got two boys, full custody. They're both in great shape. We don't have any diabetes or kidney um, issues in my family line. Right. Um, but now, the kidney people are amazing. They also, uh, halfway through the journey, they brought me into the office and they said that if something happens to you or your two boys, only them, uh, in the future, that one of you needs a kidney, you go top of the list in Canada because I was a, a, a donor. donor. Sure. Um, but doing the thing was, uh, it's a really cool adventure. It's like the, uh, for them to be able to just slap me on the table and chop me up and take a part out and stick it in somebody else. And then he's going to live a normal life. Why not? It's quite like an in amazing. The last, and in the last year he spent, I would say one out of every 10 days, he was feeling good. The remainder of them, he was on the couch, nauseous, throwing up, barely eating, like the crappiest of crap lives. And right. there's people, he was only on dialysis for 10 months. There's people out there that have been on it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So what did you, in addition to the education of simply going through the process of an organ donation, having something uh, perfectly normal and working just fine, thank you, removed and, and given to someone else. Uh, so what you went through is the removal of a healthy kidney. Uh, yeah. and, and you were up and, and, and out the front door again. Again, within 48 hours. That's remarkable, don't you think? It was the fastest anyone's done it. The second fastest was 36 hours after me. But Tim as well, like the kidney took instantly. The doctors came out of it and the surgeon saw me first because I obviously, um, they take it out of me and then they bring him in and they open him up and they take it out of me and stick it in him. And my recovery is much faster. Right. Um, but uh, the doctor, the surgeon came and saw me um, as soon as I was in my room and he said it was beyond successful it was it exceeded their expectations of how amazing it went and I don't, a normal recipient is in the hospital for six to 14 days the guy in the bed next to tim had been in there 14 days right tim got out in four wow yeah he was walking on day five so just a completely positive experience all around then scully I saw him, I was the first one to see him after the operation before his wife got there the next morning and I went across my floor, my room, to his room 
and they weren't going to let me in at first. And I just, I told him, I said, I'm just going to wait till you walk around the hall and I'm going to walk into his room and see how he's doing. So they took me into his room. Right. And, um, I looked at him and he looked at me and he smiled and he was definitely in a lot of pain because his incision is double, if not triple the size of mine. Mm-hmm. And the banging inside his body, it's, it's like rewiring a human being. Sure. And a couple minutes into the conversation, I just said, I said, apart from the pain and, you know, swelling and all this, how does your body function feel? How does it feel to not be on dialysis? He didn't say a word. He looked at me with this kind of smirk on his face and he had tears going down the side of his face. Hmm. And it was like, why not? Okay. I'm going to feel a little tightness, a little bit of, you know, got to be careful walking for the first week or two or three. Uh, lifting things is a, a criteria, but on the flip side, this guy's got a life now. Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't somebody do it? So I'm with my business. We're made shirts, and everything's coming out. And anybody who wants to become a live kidney donor from this day on, will get a free T-shirt. We'll get their name in the computer system, and they can have fifty-two free hot dogs and two fifty-two free drinks every year for the rest of their life. Well, and it's such, it's, I suppose, uh, the other thing that I, I wanted to find out from you, because you talked about working with the Kidney Foundation here in BC, and they're an yeah. amazing group of people. They really, they're so patient and so thorough and so dedicated to, to the people that are, are, are they're working with. I, I wonder, what did you learn about the donor list? Uh, people who are uh, waiting right now, this morning in British Columbia for a kidney or another organ, especially kidneys, since that's the experience that you've done. people are waiting. 400? 3,400. 3,400. In BC alone. Wow. Um, the operation is only done at St. Paul's or at BGH where I did it. Um, now, we've been flooding the media, and my friends are probably tired of seeing me on it. Uh, we've hit the news, TV, radio, print. And the first time we had a big story put in the Vancouver Sun, Nine people called up the kidney office at BGH and said because of that article, they were stepping forward to become anonymous donors. And seven more customers of mine have also said that once I come out of the hospital and in recovery, that they will sign up too. So we're going to push this and it's going to be our campaign for as long as the business is running. And even after that, it's, it's an easy thing. You go through a little bit of discomfort, but the stories that I'm getting from people from all across the country that have been waiting, it's brutal. Yeah. Like yeah. When you when you die, you use basically 0.4. If you've got two healthy kidneys, you're using 0.4 of one kidney. Of one. Over one 1. lifetime. 6. Yeah, 1.6 that's not being used. Mm-hmm. Now, b- the difference between a live kidney donor and a kidney donor that was in a car accident that died mm-hmm. is night is night and day. The, the live kidney donor, it takes right away. It's, it flows. It operates. The person that has a donor that was in a car accident where it's been dead for a day, two days, mm-hmm. not, not, nowhere near as good. The, Those people have a hard battle, and it doesn't always last. Exactly. But so, a live donor, like if you could go in and you can get zip, zip, and you're up and walking in three days or two days, and you see the, the look in somebody's eye, and you can get them up and living a life with their family, you haven't just saved one person. You saved dozens. All the people surrounded with that person, his life, his wife's life, the kids' lives, the grandkids. It's amazing. And you know what? It's, it's opened my eyes to it, and I've had the most amazing stories 
and we'll be posting them on our Facebook and Instagram page all the time. Now, that's what I was about to ask you next, Scully, because we're almost out of time, and I, I want to make sure that I, I've got the story that the Vancouver Sun uh, wrote uh, today, as a matter of fact, about your, yeah. uh, your Abbotsford kidney donor offers free hot dogs for life to other donors. That's a great story and a nice setup, too, with the free hot dogs. Nice angle there. Good marketing, Scully. Uh, but it's the most important part about this is the fact that uh, the, because people are being uh, stimulated by the story and by your account of what it's like to go through an organ donor experience and here you are just as, as hale and hearty as you were a week ago already uh, i mean so where do people go first of all to find out more about you and the shirts and what you're doing with the hot dogs and so on and then can you link them to the kidney foundation and other anybody donor spots that has, anybody that has any issues they can contact me through the facebook or instagram it's lully's food experience it's l-u-l-l-y-s food experience um, the articles are all over the place that you can find. If you can't get it there, you can just Google it. Contact me, and I'll tell you exactly what I went through, what I did, and then I'll give you the contact people at VGH who are absolutely amazing. Great stuff. Scully White, uh, just a, a pleasure to have you on the program this morning. A tip of the hat to you, sir, for being just a downright decent guy. Thank you so much.